Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here with Dr. Robert Rivers. He's an American evolutionary biologist and sociobiologist. He proposed the theories of reciprocal altruism, parental investment, facultative sex ratio determination, and parent-offspring conflict. He has also contributed by explaining self-deception as an, evolution, an, an adaptive evolutionary strategy and discussing intragenomic conflict. Steven Pinker considers Dr. Trivers to be one of the great thinkers in the history of Western thought. He's also the author of books like Social Evolution, Genes in Conflict, Deceit and Self-Deception, and the most recent one, Wildlife Adventures of an Evolutionary Biologist. So, Dr. Trivers, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's really a pleasure to speak to you. Muito obrigado. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so just before we get into your theories, and I mean, they really had a huge impact on the field of evolutionary biology. Let's just take, please, a step back to talk perhaps about what came before and perhaps what led to those theories, because I guess that, I mean, uh, a very important concept here in, in evolutionary biology that we have to remember is the one of sexual selection. And I guess that the first one to talk about it, at least briefly, was Darwin in On the Origin of Species that was published around 160 years ago. And I guess that for roughly 100 years, people more or less neglected or forget or forgot about uh, sexual selection and it was really people like William Hamilton that then in the early 60s uh, came up with the idea of kin selection and inclusive fitness theory but, but maybe before people like Fisher and JBS Aldane were already thinking a little bit about um, perhaps uh, th those kinds of concepts, even though they didn't really formalize them as much. I mean, J.B.S. Aldane is known for that famous uh, quote where he says that he would lay down his life for eight cousins or two brothers or something like that, right? I mean, so, uh, I mean, wh what is really the importance here of sexual selection and then the concepts of kin selection and inclusive fitness theory as developed by William Hamilton? Well, let me step back one step, if you don't mind. This is right. kind of, you know, but I never had a biology course uh, all through high school or college. I never had a chemistry course. I was a very advanced in mathematics, and I entered Harvard as an advanced standing sophomore in pure math. But I rapidly lost interest within a year because it was obvious to me that pure math was just a matter of proving something else that was pure math. And often the importance of it wasn't even revealed until 300 years in the future. 300 right. years in the future, they would say, oh, Ricardo Lopez showed this 300 years ago. So now we can use his equations. And um, 
so I lost interest in 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 math. I had no uh, ability in physics, which I tried. So then I decided to switch from truth to justice. So I was a Harvard undergraduate. I asked someone, what do you study if you want to be a lawyer? Poverty law, civil rights law, criminal law, where you hope the criminal is not too guilty. And they said, well, we have no pre-law here, so you study U.S. history. And that's the Federalist Papers, that's the Supreme Court decisions, and that's the entire context of law. So I studied U.S. history, but I rapidly felt that uh, U.S. history was just an exercise in deceit and self-deception. The lies we tell uh, our children about the found about who we are to make us feel better. So why are we the greatest nation ever built and the greatest set of people ever to stride the face of the earth? That those were the two central problems in American historiography. So they have different uh, answers. The receding frontier, what that meant was the extermination of successive groups of Amerindians until we took over the whole continent. Uh, the benefits of having a upper class Englishman design your political society and so on. So I thought it was just nonsense, you know. No. I had no intention of becoming a historian. I graduated from Harvard and I fortunately I got a job for a company that was putting together the new social sciences for for 10 year olds and it included hunter gatherers. It included animals and it included evolutionary logic. So they asked me in one day after two months of reading, they asked me and they said, what do you know about sociology or anthropology? I said, nothing. They said, what do you know about animals? I said, nothing. They said, you work on animals. Why? Because they cared less about the animals. So on such a, such a thin fulcrum, your entire life can change. Because if they had told me, you're going to work on sociology, you and I wouldn't be talking right now, right? But biology... I knew nothing about, so they assigned me a teacher to, to look after me, and he taught me that natural selection was about the simplest concept in the world. Some individuals leave many surviving offspring, uh, many leave fewer none. So by definition, the inheritable traits, or what we would now call the genes, of those leaving many surviving offspring become more numerous. And those leaving fewer none become less numerous. And that's it. And you repeat that generation after generation after generation after generation. And what it does is it binds together genes that promote personal survival and reproduction. Or as I came to call it, reproductive success. It was like a blinding flash once I got the argument correctly. Because in most of biology, although Darwin was clear on this, after Darwin, everybody went back to thinking natural selection favors what's good for the species. It favors things that promote species survival. That's not true. It promotes things that are good for individual survival within a species. That may or may not be good for the species. 
So once, so there was a whole set of problems that had not been addressed properly because thinking about why things are good for the species tells you nothing about how it actually evolved. So uh, I came along in 1968. Hamilton was in 64. Uh, uh, Fisher was way back in 1930 with sex ratio theory. All Lane, as you pointed out, you know, he, he was aware of kinship theory with his famous joke. Uh, a minister asked him, would you give up your life for a brother? And he said, no, but two brothers are eight cousins. <laughs> so what I discovered was there was this whole empty terrain, social theory, which nobody had uh, done anything to except on a margin. There was sex ratio, there was kinship, and there was synecdoche. Senescence. Why do we get? Why do we die when we get older? And otherwise, nothing. So, for reciprocal altruism, which I'll come back to in a second, uh, I said, "Well, uh, kinship is important, but so are friends. And sometimes friends are more important. And there's an expression I learned." Uh, you get to choose your friends. You're stuck with your relatives, which is true. Right. Some of them you like, some of them you don't. And there's other differences. But I then started working. See, I hadn't been studying animals until my teacher took me out and I studied birds and later monkeys and apes and then lizards in Jamaica and so on. So my logic was very simple. I'll just apply the problem to myself. Friendship, how does it evolve? And then try to state the argument in such a general form that it would apply to species in general. So that became reciprocity. You and I are friends, Ricardo, so I do you a favor and you do me a favor back. It's you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, but we don't do it at the same time. There's a time lag. So there's a problem of, is Ricardo going to give me the, the return favor? Let's say Ricardo dies. Then he cannot give me the return favor even if he wants to. Or let's say Ricardo wants to cheat a little bit and give me a return favor, but not as big as the favor I gave him. So, okay. The second thing that I got working on was what you just mentioned. Parental investment, sexual selection. It was the, it became the general theory for the evolution of sex differences in all species that had two sexes, or even hermaphrodites. And that theory is one of the most cited papers in all of biology. Reciprocal uh, altruism is second to it. But in any case, how did that come about? Would you like to hear that, how that came about? Mm -hmm. Yes, that was was the reason why I asked you about what came before those theories. So if you could please tell us about that part of the history. Well, I was watching pigeons at night because I used to stay up late at night and the pigeons roosted right outside my third floor apartment 
and they roosted on the gutters, not on a sloping roof, and they roosted together. Whether that was for warmth or safety from predators, I couldn't be sure, but I thought it was warmth. So there were four pigeons outside at night, sleeping close to each other. Now the females are less aggressive than the males are, so you might easily think the best way for them to sleep is for the females on the inside, because there'll be less conflict and we'll keep the males on the outside. No, it's the other way around exactly. The males are on the inside for a very simple reason. That's my female, quote unquote. This is your female, quote unquote. I want to sit between her and you because I don't trust you. And you want to sit between uh, me and her because you don't trust me. So right away I said, oh, so these, this is a highly monogamous species. They often stay married for life. Uh, they produce two eggs at a time and feed them together and blah, blah, blah. So I say, wow, here you've got a monogamous species. And by the dogma of ornithology, they're completely cooperative. They're a family unit. There's no conflict. But here I see the inklings of conflict over, guess what? Over what we came to call extra pair copulations, mm -hmm. right? So then I would watch them further. Now, the male would sit on the eggs from four o'clock in the evening all the way through to 10 in the morning. And then the females would sit on the eggs from 10 in the morning till four o'clock. So the eggs were always sat upon. But at 10 o'clock in the morning and also at four o'clock in the evening, you had an overlap where if you went to the park, you might see some of your males there who were no longer having to take care of their young. And they're busy and there's some females that haven't yet um, gone to sit on uh, gone to sit on eggs so they're courting them so the same males that are acting paranoid over an extra pair of copulation they're going uh, and and courting females so they're trying to get an extra pair of copulation at the same time that they're trying to prevent one. So once again, this heightened my sense of, oh, this is conflict that seems somewhat familiar to ourselves. You know what I mean? That right. kind of fight. And I could tell you another anecdote or two along those lines, but let me skip it and just say that um, uh, I was very close friends with Ernst Meyer, who was a famous evolutionary biologist and a fantastic mind. And um, I was taking a reading course from him in genetics. And one week I hadn't done any reading. So I went in and I told him pigeon stories. So he says to me, have you read Bateman 48 in Heredity? He had a photographic memory, I later learned, which he had hidden because he was a student in Germany where, where a lot of it was memorization. And if you have a photographic memory, you have an unfair advantage. So, but he told me when you reach 50, 
the photographic memory disappears. You, you no longer remember an entire page by just looking at it, but you still have a good memory. So how many other professors would tell you, have you yet read Bateman 48 in heredity? You'd have to be blind, and I like to add deaf and dumb, not to be able to find a goddamn reference. So I said, no. He said, you should read that. So we talk a little bit longer and I go away. Then I come back two weeks later, three weeks later. I still haven't done any reading. So I start telling him pigeon anecdotes again. So he cuts me off. He's, he leans forward. He says, have you yet read Bateman 48 and Heredity? I had forgotten, but he hadn't. So I say, no. And then I loved him for this, he said. I will not continue this conversation until you have. So I walked out of his office with one desire to read Bateman 48 in heredity. And that night, see, you could, you could copy things at night without paying any money at the museum. So that night I'm copying the paper. Leaning against the old-fashioned Xerox machine because it, it gave out an odious green light and I was afraid it might be You know having a bad effect on my on my genitals So I'm leaning against it and there it is Bateman 48 and heredity and I read it and I said sweet Jesus That's the solution to the whole goddamn thing What did Bateman 48 and heredity have? He did experimental work on Drosophila, often five males and five females. And what he showed was that females who did all the work, they produce eggs which are expensive and costly, their reproductive success varied like so. 4% of them didn't have any because nobody, they didn't want any of the males. And the others they had between, say, 20 offspring and 70 offspring. But the males, some males mated with every single female. So he had a bump here at 30, he had another bump at 60, he had a smaller bump at 90. So the variance, the variability was higher in males than in females, simply because sperm don't cost anything compared to eggs. So that, that was the whole solution right there. Variance and reproductive success analyzed by sex. And all I did was just say, all right, that's the key. And then I worked on it for months and months. Mm -hmm. So I guess that that variance in reproductive success you've just referred to is really at the basis of parental investment and then uh, uh, at the biological basis of sex differences as we approach them nowadays in biology and even in fields like sociobiology and evolutionary psychology, right? So uh, at, at the very basis of it, is the fact that for males and females there is a differential in terms of the meta metabolic cost of then of them producing their gametes and then all stems from that right because i mean for example in the case of humans since women only produce around 
uh, one egg per month, sometimes two or a little bit more, and men produce sperm all the time, then uh, all stems from that, right? And at the very end of it, women have to be a bit more choosy than men about their mating partners, right? Yes, exactly. Um, I used to joke when I was lecturing to undergraduates years ago that in the last half hour, no, in the last hour, every testicle in this room has produced 100,000 sperm, which is true. And I said, that's a lot of sperm with nowhere to go. And everybody would laugh. So as you know, of course, for a woman, it's nine months pregnancy. Right. If if you if if you fertilize an egg. And then it's and then it's nursing. A couple of years of nursing. And further possible maternal care. So the difference is enormous. You know. Now we're also a species where males do invest. And that's a more complicated situation. And more interesting in a way, they do not invest as much as females do on average, uh, but they invest probably more than half uh, on average, depending on the relationship, of course, depending on whether you stay married and you try, uh, you know, you, you scrub the floor and you do a little bit of work around the house, plus you pay for the rent and so on. But uh, yes. So, I mean, the degree to which males and I mean, we could talk specifically about humans, but probably you also want to refer to other species. But the degree to which males have to invest in a particular offspring, it also depends on the ecological and the social circumstances. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we still we still do not understand the evolution of male parental investment as well as uh, we understand some of these other details. And that was true when I published my paper, and it's just still true. It's a more difficult problem. Um, yes, and I mean, even in humans, we also have this issue issue, I mean, in terms of trying to explain uh, parental investment on the part of males that during most of our evolutionary history, we also had a lot of cooperative breeding. And so people from the family, particularly grandmothers, also helped uh, win the children, right? So, Absolutely. There's a fascinating literature on that. And we believe that menopause, where a woman stops being able to reproduce at roughly age 50, is an adaptation because she works as a grandmother to aid the survival of her offspring already. Uh, and you have a maternal grandmother and a paternal grandmother. And they differ in a very interesting way in terms of uh, their effect on the grandchildren. But yes, indeed, it's complicated, you know. Let me tell you another thing that's, that stuck out to me. 
in the old days, people used to think more in terms of male-male competition. So, for example, deer, they have antlers because you and I fight. And if I beat you up, I get more of the females. Well, it's partly true, but really the antlers are not used to fight. In other words, you do not try to gouge another male with an antler. You lock the antlers together in the species that have big antlers and you push against each other. And if, if I'm stronger, I can push you the hell out of the territory and then I'm attractive to females but what people uh, overlooked for a good while was female choice because they're equally strong in principle uh, if you've got low male parental investment that means you've got an opportunity for any given male to garner more females by chasing away other males but you also have a chance to reproduce more because more females like you. And Bateman showed this way back in 48. The 4% of females that I mentioned to you didn't reproduce at all. It was not because they didn't want to, it was because they didn't like any of the five females. I mean, any of the five males. Now, 21% of the males did not reproduce. Why? Well, we believe it's because observationally, they were turned down by all the females. So the females didn't like any of the five. So they got nothing. So one thing that Hamilton discovered uh, way back in 1982 uh, with a, a female graduate student named Marlene Zilk, he came up with a theory that bright coloration so often exists in male birds, for example, because it's hard to be brightly colored if you're sick. You know, we can almost intuitively relate to it, although the logic is a bit different. If you're sick right now, you're going to be pale. But that's because, you know, you're not going to have the blood, the healthy oxygenated blood in your face. But by a similar kind of logic, if you're sick, you're just not able to make your feathers as bright, you know. Uh, they've shown this for peacocks, you know, peacocks with those incredible tail feathers and the number of, the number of eye spots. And the more parasites they have, the less eye spots they have. So we're pretty sure that female choice is partly and you know a third let's say devoted to trying to detect parasite resistant genes because you want your children to be healthy and so you choose a male who looks as if he can withstand parasites yes i mean you've just referred to costly signaling in the case of peacocks but we also have that in males of other species and it's basically a form of signaling that can't really be faked because if the if that particular specimen went through infection during development or went through malnutrition or something like that it wouldn't really be able to develop those sorts of uh, features that females are, are highly attentive to and 
that are the ones that are really targets of sexual selection. And so it's also a mechanism that species have evolved to try to uh, show something that, that is not subject to a counterfaction or something like that. And so uh, to, to really try to go around mechanisms of deception that species have also evolved. And so we have sort of an arms race, evolutionary arms race here, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> okay, so uh, let me just ask you now, so we've been talking about uh, sexual selection here uh, and how it stems from parental yeah. And now it stems from parental investment theory and, th and things like that. So, I mean, uh, it's also the case that, and this is related to parent-offspring conflict. Uh, I mean, we have kin selection on the one hand, but also on the other hand, we have to take into account that even if offspring have have roughly 50% of their parents' genes. They don't share 100% of the genes, and there's where parent-offspring conflict stems from, right? Because, I mean, the, the interests of the parents and their offspring are not 100% aligned. Yes, I would be tempted to emphasize it slightly differently, Ricardo. The way you say it is fine, but you do it from the offspring up and say they don't have all the parents' genes. I would rather do it from the parents down and say, uh, well, both, both. The parents look down and they are equally related to each of their offspring. Even though the offspring only have half their genes, as long as they're outbreeding, the degree of relatedness is a half. So they value each of them the same. They want to maximize the total number survivors. Now you, let's look at you. You're sitting there and you're saying, I'm related to myself by one. I'm related to by Bob Trivers. This is it by your sibling by a half. I'm related to to Susie Cracho over here, also your full sibling by half. So therefore, I want more from mom than she is selected to give them. And same thing if dad was working. So parent-offspring conflict is inevitable just because of the asymmetry in relatedness. It's just like what you're saying, but I just amplifying it a tiny bit. And, um, to me, it was so obvious. I mean, I remember coming down here to Jamaica once when I was working on it, and I was I would come down here to study lizards. So one morning, I sat out there with a little something to aerate my brain, and I just wrote out the first four sections of parent-offspring conflict because it was so obvious. All you had to do was draw a graph of. Uh, optimizing something from the uh, parent standpoint, then the offspring was different because it, it, it subtracted half against it, whereas the mother subtracted the full amount. And so you would get a difference. 
So you'd get parent offspring conflict over the end of the period of parental investment. Then you'd get parent offspring conflict over uh, how much to invest during the period of parental investment. And I was telling someone the other day, uh, I was walking along Lake Tanganyika, which is where um, Jane Goodall's chimps were, with Robert Hine, who was an expert on animal behavior. And we were talking about parent offspring conflict. He'd done some interesting work, which I had promptly reinterpreted. And I was shocked. I, I, I was expecting him at the end of my lecture to come up and, you know, you're wrong and so forth. He came up to me and he said, I've been thinking about this for 15 years. And in one night, you've changed my whole way of thinking about it. So I said, oh, I like you. So we're walking along, Lake Tanganyika talking, when it suddenly hit me. An offspring conflict extends to the offspring's conscience. That's because your conscience, we believe then, whatever the hell it is, is formed roughly between ages two and three. Now, we know very well, Ricardo, that you don't remember anything before age four, unless I chop off your leg, you know, or you get uh, acid thrown on your face. You're not going to remember it. So, but our conscience affects how we interact with other individuals and how much we uh, rate them or how much uh, valence or weight we give to an effect on them. So I thought, my God, parent-offspring conflict extends right down into our conscience. I don't know how the conscience is formed. But I know it's formed in a in a world of conflict where the parents would be psychologically, consciously or unconsciously, manipulating your conscience to care more about others, to be more just than you would yourself. So that was like a that was like a blinding insight. And uh Later on, David Haig, who now has my old job at Harvard, uh, worked out that your paternal genes and your maternal genes are, are in conflict. So that's an even deeper form of conflict, you know. Have you had David on your, your show yet? Uh, no, not yet. Not yet, but I will try to have him someday. <laughs> yeah, you, you should do it. Although it'll be harder to get him than me. Uh, he's extremely busy. So go ahead, brother. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I was going to ask you, so uh, with all of these about uh, parent-offspring conflict, uh, so at least part of it also has to do with sibling conflict, because, I mean, probably... Um, um, most of the time, I, I'm not sure if it's most of the time. You can correct you can correct me there if I'm wrong. But I mean, uh, it seems to me that most of it stems from the fact that parents usually have one more than one child, and when there's at least a second child, then the other one uh, would try to get more resources from the parents and i mean parents at least 
most of the time would prefer to invest equally on both children. I mean, there are some exceptions there, and we can talk about that. But what are, uh, the, exceptions? I, what are the exceptions? I don't. I don't think of a single one. Well, 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 isn't it the case that there are some situations where parents decide to invest more, for example, in one of the sexes? I mean, um, uh, boys or girls, depending on the situation. For example, if they are part of a highly stratified society, uh, probably uh, parents that are uh, high in the hierarchy, they would prefer investing more in sons and parents down in the hierarchy would prefer investing more in girls. And, and perhaps you could explain that, but or, or, or am I wrong? Hold on a second, Ricardo. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yes, that example is fine, but in principle, um, when you say there's situations where there's no conflict. The only situation I can dream up where there's no conflict at all is where you're the only child and that's it. They're destined to give birth to one child now. They ain't got nothing else uh, to look forward to or is in a kettle. They'll be selected to invest all out in you because them, I did them dead soon. So they'll be selected and you'll be selected to receive the max. So the only situation in which I see no conflict between parent offspring is if there's only one child. Now what you're talking about are situations where the parents are not selected to invest equally in different children. And that's found in other animals. We don't have to worry about stratified human societies. Uh, for example, um, let's say you have a clutch of birds uh, in a nest and they differ in size as they do. It tends to be that the first hatched is the biggest. Uh, the eggs vary typically with uh, when they were laid and the more nutrients the mother has, the bigger the egg is. Now, let's say you've got four, four offspring, one, two, three, four, and they differ in size. Now, in some species, the female feeds the smallest preferentially. So she has the strategy, it seems, of trying to get through of trying to get all four to survive. The father, you can trust us, we just feed whoever is begging artists. We come to the next, you know, and uh oh, you're begging most, so you get it. Oh, you're begging second most, so you get it. So that's the reverse of her strategy, you see, because in her strategy, she may even stroke the neck of the smallest to get it to beg. So that's a very interesting case where you have conflict between dad and mom over how much they're going to value offspring of different ages, well, of different birth order, hatching order within a nest. Now, of course, 
Of course, in humans, you have complicated systems of sex bias, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, but when you were referring to the bird, the female bird that perhaps invests a, a bit more on the smallest offspring, uh, I mean, is it because they have sort of a mechanism or, or an innate bias to invest in the smallest offspring because the smallest is usually the youngest and the youngest is the... Uh, neediest or yes, yes. that we think is a logic mm -hmm. the neediest are the most vulnerable now if if food was short you would say the young, youngest you would say the hell with the youngest we don't have enough food so I did them for dead <laughs> but if food is more abundant yes you bias it towards the the youngest, because you're trying to get all of them through. And it just seems, I just remember this species where I, I it just was a visual image where the, where the mother is intelligent and, you know, rational and trying to get them all the way through. And the male comes and he says, whoever is begging the most, you get it, as if he doesn't have a brain, you know. So, so that being the case, wouldn't uh, shouldn't we expect that perhaps offspring from different species would try to evolve strategies where they would look younger than they really are just to try to uh, manipulate the parents to invest more in them or well that's an interesting hypothesis let's just leave it like that you know, if you're talking about individuals from a single nest, I don't think there's much selection in there to look even younger. You all came out at the same time. You may you may be selected to act more needy. You may be selected to beg more hard, you know, because it's it's the hard begging that's actually causing the parent to do it. And what about the hypothesis that perhaps offspring would try to interfere with the mother uh, having more children and perhaps with uh, her copulations? Because, I mean, if they are the only offspring, all the resources would be invested in them. So would that make sense for the offspring to try to prevent the mother of having uh, sex even with the father or with other uh, with other males to produce more offspring mm -hmm. well my answer off the top of my head is not really because um, then we're almost getting the grand parental life where if you're preventing mom from breeding, does she have no other chance to breed? What are you doing? You're harming yourself or you're apt to be. Okay, let's move on, brother. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about reciprocal altruism because you've already referred to that and you referred to the interesting fact that probably most people do not think about that is there are really situations where 
uh, our friends, uh, I mean, our interests are more in line with the ones of our friends and vice versa than the ones coming from our family members. And so in a sense, we can, we can get into situations where friends favor us more than even our own parents, for example, right? Yeah, now that's a very good point and that I would like to pursue. Mm -hmm. So one quote I gave you is, we get to choose our friends, we're stuck with our relatives. Another, another factor that's very important is the following. Your brother has a self-interest in you. I, as your friend, do not. What do I mean by that? By self-interest, I do not mean that we're both named Lopez, and therefore, if you fuck up, uh, you're going to harm me because they're going to say, you see what the Lopez's are like? I'm leaving that one aside. People talk about that one. I'm saying this. You are related to me. Let's make you a full sibling to me. You're related by half. So let's say I'm using cocaine or doing something else stupid. And I know what I'm talking about. I've been through this, you know. I lived in California in the 1980s. So I've done stupid, self-destructive things. Now, in principle, your brother could come visit you and say, Ricardo, you say, yes, what? You're screwing up. Well, what do you mean? You're using drugs all the time. You say, who says? You know, because <laughs> you're defensive. So he can then get on your case for harming him. Not indirectly by reputation, but directly because you are part of his inclusive fitness. Right. Now, you are not part of my inclusive fitness. I'm your friend. I love you. I care for you. We, we share this and that and the other thing together. But... If you're screwing up on cocaine, it's not affecting my uh, inclusive fitness at all. You know, now, let me give you an, another example of, of friends, mm -hmm. their value. This happened just several years ago. Jamaican friend of mine up in New Jersey. So I'm on the phone with him. He says, uh, he says, what are you doing? He says, I said, I'm. I'm writing out a nasty uh, message to leave on a girl's uh, phone, which, as you know, is stupid. If you're going to say something nasty to a woman, better you say it in person so she can forget it. If you put it on her goddamn phone as a message, she can sit and listen to it until she dies of boredom and get angry every time. So I say, I'm thinking of... of of writing, of, of sending this girl a nasty message on her phone. He says, why are you thinking of that? I said, well, she left a nasty one on my phone. He said, yes, but what's the effect of this is going to be, Bob? She's just going to write a nastier one back. So where's your gain? So this is a famous Concord fallacy, as 
as uh, Richard Dawkins referred to it. Uh, in poker, we say don't throw good. Hey, I, I, we say don't throw good money after bad, right? So in other words, it's over with. She wrote you a nasty message, and you suffered the cost. Uh, why don't you leave it behind you? By continuing with it, you are prolonging the cost to you. <coughs> because as I said, he said, all that's going to happen is she's going to write you back a nastier one. And you know something, Ricardo, when I got off the phone, I did not send that message. And I said, God bless you, friend. And I thought to myself, if, if you, you're the friend now, if you had been my brother, I don't think you would have given me such good advice. You know what I mean? But a friend both cares for you and is detached from you in terms of actual inclusive fitness. So he's more free to to give you a, a good advice, you know. So I, I kind of love that, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, but I mean, the other side of the question here is, uh, like you referred, of course, I might be harming the inclusive fitness of my brother or my parents through my irresponsible behavior, for example. But in the case of my friend, uh, uh, wouldn't I be harming him, at least his social reputation, if he was known by being a friend of mine, and I also had that sort of irresponsible behavior? Ricardo, I want to hit you. You're, you're too far away there. Oh, okay. Oh, oh. Well, that's, that's a good point, Ricardo, but I think it's... I think it's less strong than the kinship effect because the kinship effect is direct. It does not require a reputational effect. The friendship one does. People say, oh, you're a friend of Ricardo Lopez. You're an idiot because Ricardo Lopez is the kind of guy who does such and such. You're a friend of him? So yes, in principle, you're right. But I think there's a difference, you know. I think there's a difference between whether we're linked by kinship or just by friendship. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what is really the, the importance of reciprocal altruism uh, in the way our human societies evolved? Because I guess that during most of our evolutionary history, when we were still like, for example, hunter-gatherers or horticulturalists or, or even pastoralists, I mean, small-scale societies, uh, reciprocal altruism probably had really a big impact on the way societies were structured. But uh, in modern day societies, particularly where most people are anonymous to each other, uh, I, I, I mean, uh, I guess that my question is, what is the role that reciprocal altruism plays in structuring human societies? That I can't answer. Hmm. If you ask me what's the evidence that it's important in other creatures, 
I can tell you there's, there's just a volume of data now just pouring forth. And it's often been true, or several times been true in my work, that um, the initial response is interest, and then there's a second response that says, hey, this, this, this doesn't happen. So, for example, reciprocal altruism. They published papers saying, hey, there is no reciprocity. Here's data from vervet monkeys. Here's data from so-and-so. I would look at them and say, these are trashy data. And they, and they miss central facts that are true of uh, almost all creatures. For example, there's a neighbor effect. It's well known in birds, it's well known in other species now. If, if we're living in a society where they're neighbors and you're my next door neighbor, we are selected to, to not fight over the boundary. The boundary is arbitrary for Christ's sake. It doesn't mean anything. If, if the boundary goes here as opposed to here, what's the difference? But if we spend all day fighting about it, we are both losing. So what happens is that neighbors quickly come to an agreement. And sometimes it's quite arbitrary, which was interesting in the old days to see. It just happened to be a line there. And the birds just said, well, let's use that line. So, um, so that's reciprocal restraint. You don't attack me, I don't attack you. Now, they, there were excellent data. I published them in my 85 book showing that if your neighbor was one neighbor removed, so there was a neighbor between you and that neighbor, you fought with that neighbor more often than you did with your next door neighbor. Because, you know, you didn't have a arbitrary place where you could disagree. So, so let me, let me come back to your question because I'm, I'm running away from it. Uh, reciprocal altruism is now known in, in a variety of creatures, rats, they've been doing a lot of work on them. They trade different kinds of favors. We know from Franz Seval's work, uh, New World monkeys uh, heavily involved in reciprocal altruism, reciprocal spite, and so on. Uh, v formations in birds, where you fly like that. And uh, we know that everybody downwind from the first one gains a benefit because you are flying in the wake of the air of the bird ahead of you and it saves you energy what about the bird in front that bird is not flying behind anybody so we used to think that that bird would after it got tired it would just go to the back and then gradually move forward until finally it was stuck in front again but even if that were true the problem with a cheater would be don't some of you just fly in front for a little while and say, oh, I'm tired, and then fly to the back. Now we know it's actually reciprocal altruism. You have one partner that you switch with, and you go back and forth. He or she is fourth or fifth down, and then when you drop, you drop to their position, and they take over your position. 
and that has to do with the fact that all the positions are not the same. There's some positions where you save more energy, and they're around the fourth or the fifth. So anyway, as for what's the role of reciprocal altruism in the structure of human, you know, let someone else figure that sucker out. I don't okay. have any idea. Okay, fair enough. So let's now talk a little bit about self-deception, because I guess that is, this is a very important topic here. Uh, would it be reasonable to say that self-deception evolved to operate mostly on situations where we want to, uh, to keep our, and to protect our social reputation and also to uh, protect or even increase our mating value in the mating market? Would, would that be reasonable? Or Why do you want to restrict it to that? Uh, well, well, it's just that uh, it came to my mind that it seems to me that those are probably the biggest domains where it has a real impact. I, I'm not sure that that's why I was asking you if that was a reasonable approach or not. So if I'm lying to you, Ricardo, uh, and I'm conscious of it, then you can pay attention to um, conscious signals of consciousness. Okay. Now, they used to think it was things like, oh, my eyes would be going because I'd be nervous. No. Um, it depends on the lie you're giving. If you have to think about the lie, for example, you have to construct it and then you have to remember it, then you actually tend to make your, your eyes tend to waver less because they know already that cognitive load, which is you're trying to think about something while you're talking, tends to make you move your eyes less. They prove this with a completely separate set of experiments where they make you add numbers in your head while you're also solving a problem. All right, fine. So what what does it do verbally? Well, you there's more pauses. There's more ooh, uh, those kind of pause words. And um, and what was the other one? Uh, oh, yeah. Simple action words and uh, no qualifiers. So I say, I walk to the office. That's simple, active verb. And then they don't say, although it was raining, I walked to the office. Because that's a qualifier which you now have to remember. So everything's kind of simple, you know. Now, what is the best cue to lie? It is a tendency to raise your voice when you're lying or when you hit the key word because you're nervous about being detected. Let's say you're lying to your wife or your spouse or your partner. And let's say it involves another individual. Not necessarily, you know, I just 
got out of bed with her, but you know, I had lunch with her, something like that. If your wife reads you, you may be in for a very unpleasant evening. In, in fact, you may be in for several unpleasant evenings, right? So as you lie, you tend to draw your diaphragm in out of nervousness. Now, the automatic effect of that, automatic, is that it tends to press your voice up higher. So your voice tends to rise. So the best cue of, of, of the literature is voice tending to rise. Now, I'll give you one example, which is my favorite, God knows. It happened down here in Jamaica about, uh, what was it, about seven years ago. So a woman is lying to me, uh, and she says, you think I'm there with Sherry? And what happened was her voice started to rise, and then she lost it, and it flipped up two full octaves. Well, I thought to myself, I, I had a theory that you had a sexual relationship with Sherry, in other words, another woman. But now I have one more data point. So to me, it was just so vivid because she lost it and her voice shot way the hell up there, you know. You think I'm there with Sherry. So I do think it's, it's almost a universal feature of our discourse. If we're trying to lie, that we're going to be tempted to self-deception so as not to give off those kind of cues, you know. The other one has to do with uh, trying to um, trying to be more confident than we have a right to be. And um, so there's a well-known rule that people tend to put themselves in the top half of a category that's positive, right? So 70% of men say they're better looking on average. Same with women. 80% uh, of high school seniors in the U.S. say they're in the top half for leadership ability. It's not possible. Now, my joke is you cannot be academic for self-deception. In the U.S., 94% of academics say they're in the top half of their profession, right? Right. I plead guilty. I can be tied down to a back bed in a mental hospital, and I still think I'm doing better than half my colleagues. And that's not just a comment on my colleagues. So I cannot remember the form of your question again, and you might want to repeat it. But I do think of self-deception as being kind of general. But what was your question again about it? Uh, my question was if it really applies more uh, in fields or domains, like, for example, the ones related to social reputation and mating value, for example. Well, I think it certainly applies to mating value. And we know that for sure. There's beautiful work that shows that men and women both tend to think of themselves as being about 20% better looking than they really are. 
Now, not all. Uh, there's a graph of women. If this is if this is accuracy, most of them are elevating themselves, but some down here actually think they're worse looking than they are. And I don't know about you, but I've always found such women extremely unattractive. When I would when I would become conscious, this is when I was a younger man. When I would become conscious that the woman I was courting or looking at thought of herself less than she was, it was just an immediate turnoff because I said, I've only known her for a month. She's known herself for 28 years. <laughs> you know, so if she thinks she's worse, I believe her. She's worse. So I agree with you about courtship. Uh, and what was the other category you mentioned? Uh, social reputation. Well, perhaps you're right there too. Why do you choose that? Well, just because it came to my mind that uh, most of the ways people interact with one another, I mean, a common theme of people's interactions probably has to do with the fact that they're trying to convey an image of themselves to other people that really uh, helps to protect or even increase their social reputation, and that is directly tied with uh, fitness in particularly in social species and in humans can you tell me what a social reputation is uh, well so, social reputation would be uh, roughly speaking uh, what people think about you what they think is your social position in the social hierarchy uh, and I mean things like that okay so, so basically, perhaps self-deception here could work as a benefit to people when they're trying to lie uh, in terms of their qualities that might uh, raise their position in the social hierarchy. Like, for example, uh, if they say that they are friends with someone that is really high status or they are more intelligent than they really are. And I, I don't know, I could give many examples, so I, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I agree with all your examples. That's why when you started to mention like two categories, I'm thinking, I think there are dozens of categories. So go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, I was just going to ask you again about self-deception. If you think that uh, an approach that is very prevalent in disciplines like evolutionary psychology, that is the one related to modularity of mind and basically the mind being uh, divided in several different modules and each of them would probably process and hold different information regarding different problems that we have to tackle, if that would in any way help explain how self-deception works? Because, I mean, would it be possible, for example, for us to have a module where if it is active, 
we don't have access to information that is real, I mean, to the real information about ourselves, but then if another module is active, then that information gets shut down and it is when we don't have access to that information and it's easier for us to lie about ourselves. And I'm asking you this also because it seems to me that in certain situations, self-deception might be deleterious. So, for example, if I think that I'm stronger than I really am and I put myself in a dangerous situation, I might die. So, I don't know, things like that. I um, I don't follow social uh, I don't follow evolutionary psychology very much, just as I dislike the term sociobiology because it was just invented by Wilson, and then people said he's the father of sociobiology. I said no, he's the father of the word sociobiology. That's a big difference. He didn't invent the damn field. And the fact that he's gone off the rails now and doesn't believe in kinship theory, doesn't believe in haplodiploidy, he was never very good at theory. I knew him a lot. I, I was, he, we were close friends, and I love him. Um, and he's a wonderful sense of humor. But um, evolutionary psychology wedded themselves to certain notions that I don't agree with. The, uh, could, could you give some examples? Yeah, I'm about to. The Environment of Evolutionary Adaptation, the EEA. Ah. Natural selection is always grinding ahead. And I've been especially sensitive to data over the last 40,000 years. And uh, because we started increasing in density then, and whenever you increase in density, the parasites are happy. You know, if, if a mosquito bites me and I've got malaria and it has to fly a mile and a half to bite you, you're not getting it, you know. But if we're all packed together so that it bites me and it just flies in the next room and bites three other people, uh, it's going to spread. So... Uh, parasites are a major, major selective force. I think it's about uh, a third of all selection pressures are parasites. Not just in ourselves, I think in species in general. Um, but, um, so EEA, yes, we were hunter-gatherers, but God Almighty, we were evolving during this whole time and the notion that there's been too little time since we gave up the EEA to evolve much, I think is, is nonsense. Um, uh, do, do you think that another problem w with EEA is the fact that perhaps different human societies... Hold on one second. Yeah. So you then mentioned the notion of modules. And that, I think, is more promising, that there are modules. I don't know, you know, I have not gotten into the literature, Ricardo, so I'm not going to pretend. Um, but certainly, you can imagine a module that exists to handle you in a certain situation, 
and you don't really bother with any of that machinery unless you need it and then you press a button and that module lights up so i do think there's something to that but i just i just haven't followed it so just asking you about the EEA, since you referred to it, don't you think that perhaps another problem with the evolutionary environment of adaptedness would be that even though we were mostly hunter-gatherers during most of our evolutionary history, uh, different uh, human societies evolved in different environmental circumstances? So and so they were exposed to different selective pressures and that would lead to the conclusion that perhaps uh, our behavior is not as universal as evolutionary psychologists try to paint it. Well, absolutely. I don't read them, so I don't know what they're up to these days. But yes, I agree with what you just said. Mm -hmm. Okay, not so... Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so le let me just ask you about one last topic. And since you referred to E.O. Wilson, I guess th that has some relationship with it. Uh, that is about the units and levels of selection. Because, I mean, uh, there are still people nowadays, and I guess that E.O. Wilson more recently also embraced the idea of group selection operating at the genetic or the biological level. So what would you have to say about that? Because it seems that there are people that really push forth this idea and say that we really should, um, should give it some importance, or at least in certain species, like, for example, humans, because we are highly social, and also to try to explain perhaps some extreme cases of altruism like we find in human societies. And Yeah, what's an example of extreme altruism in a human society? Uh, well, uh, they give the example of people self-sacrificing in wars and to save a stranger, for example, and people donating blood. Uh, I mean, situations where the reciprocity is not really directly there and it is hard to explain how, why people would perform those actions. I had won the Crawford Prize, which was a lot of money, in 2007. So for the first time in my life, I donated money to a presidential uh, candidate. And of course, it was Barack Obama. And I ended up, I got so pissed at, at, at uh, uh, Clinton's husband, Bill Clinton, a dreadful liar that he said something stupid in South Carolina and I went and gave another thousand. So I gave the max I was allowed to. Now, I think it's a good example of what you're talking about. There's no reciprocity there. Barack, I'm still waiting for Barack to send me a check in the mail, you know. <laughs> um, and I was disappointed in him. By the way, deceit and self-deception. I wrote an essay on it and Unfortunately, I haven't even tried to publish it. I have two essays on modern politics. One is Obama and deceit and self-deception. 
because I think he practiced it. And I think it, 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 it had a bad effect on his presidency, right? In fact, it helped bring on Trump, which is, uh, my God, you don't have a Trump in Portugal, do you? Mm-hmm. Yes. You do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We follow more or less U.S. politics here as well. <laughs> so That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Yeah, Europe is going crazy too. Trump is such a fucking idiot, liar. Oh, my God. And we've known him for 40 years. Those of us who followed him, you know, through his business career, because I lived in New Jersey and New York. That's where he was stealing from everybody. But anyway, uh, I want to get back to group selection in a second. But... Um, Yeah. The other thing I want to write about is Trump. Trump is fighting Darlington's rule. Do you know what Darlington's rule is? Bill Darlington was uh, one of the greatest American evolutionary biologists of the 20th century. I knew him at Harvard. He had a limp. He was the world's expert on beetles. He was the founder of zoogeography, the modern version of it. And back before then, Since biologists worked in the temperate zone, they thought life originated in the temperate zone. No, life originates in the tropics and it continually evolves in the tropics. There are the species diversity in the tropics is overwhelming compared to the temperate zone. For example, Panama is the size of Rhode Island, which is a little tiny state in the U.S. Yet Panama has three times as many bird species as the entire United States. And the smaller the species you get, the more numerous it gets in the tropics. And Africa is the center of the tropics. So you have huge numbers of parasites and they select uh, for various, various traits. So anyway, So you always have life migrating out of the tropics into the temperate zone, and then sometimes some of it migrating further into the Arctic, right? It, it barely ever goes the other way around. In fact, when I learned to feel, the exceptions were so unusual, that's what you remembered. Salamanders actually evolved in the temperate zone, and they partly reinvaded the, the tropics. Everything else, frogs, every God, Jesus thing you mentioned. Same thing with humans, as we know. You know, the, the number of times we've migrated out of Africa in hominids of once, you know, in the last two million years, is six or seven times, you know, independently. And so he's trying to build a border down there in Mexico to keep the migrants out. Now, he's such a racist that my joke is if it was black people, he'd be using napalm, you know. Since it's Mexicans, he's just trying to build a wall or put them in prison or whatever, whatever. But he cannot possibly win. He cannot possibly overcome Darlington's rule. I just read an article today, by the way, Ricardo, that, uh, or a couple of days ago, that um, uh, 
global warming is increasing the pressure now from the tropics because it's having a harmful effect on their crops, so they're trying to migrate north. You know, there was a governor of Wisconsin who got so excited by Trump, he decided to build a wall to Canada. The only problem being that everybody wants to go from the U.S. to Canada. There's nobody from Canada trying to come back down. You know, the migration is always in one direction. All right, now group selection. Uh, D.S. Wilson is the name that should come to your mind. Never mind. The, the, David Sloan Wilson, right. Right. Have you interviewed him? Yes. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he's, I was going to say mostly full of shit, so let me modify that and say half full of shit. But um, I still am very skeptical about group selection. Uh, you got to define it precisely. <coughs> you got to show what the migration rate is in, into and outside of groups and so on. Um, yes, humans seem, you know, especially with our bigger and bigger mega groups, you know more subject to group selection per se, but I don't know. I still don't like it. Well, I, I mean, I mean, there are people, particularly the ones that work on cultural evolution, that talk about group selection operating only at the cultural level and they leave the genetic level aside. So I don't know if that would be helpful in any way or not. Well, that I got involved in was... The group down there in California uh, that are culture, gene culture co-evolution. Maybe you've interviewed one or two of them. Yeah, I've interviewed Robert Boyd and Peter Richardson. Yeah. There you go. There you go. And I was most unimpressed. I got into an argument with one of those two guys. Uh, was it Peter or Robert? That's how bad my memory is now. And the more we argued, the less impressed I was because they wanted to make out that the cultural unit was exactly analogous to a genetic unit. And that's bullshit because a gene we can actually define, describe, we can even give base pair structures. Cultural units, they change almost they change almost as we propagate them. I give you an idea, let's say, and you take the idea, but you know, you moderate it as it, as it arrives in your brain. And then you turn to someone and say, you know, I heard an interesting concept from Robert Trivers and here's how I represent it. And it's already changed. So how in God's name he can pretend that gene culture units are like genes. I mean, precisely, metaphorically, but precisely. It's gibberish to me. And I mean, that would be the same problem that uh, a concept like meme, as invented by Richard Dawkins, would have, or, or not? Absolutely. The only thing is... Uh, Meme, I thought, was just an invention of his 
to make it seem like the selfish gene was even more powerful than it was because all the other chapters were on everybody else's work, mostly my own. And then he decides to invent one on me. But what I thought of as a meme back then was some fragment of a Portuguese song that stuck in your brain. You know, how it's stuck in your brain and it goes on for weeks and weeks. That's a meme to me. Some, some fragment of verbiage that manages to replicate itself in your own brain and maybe also spreads. But, uh, yeah, I haven't been in love with that. But, you know, uh, Ricardo, you um, maybe it's especially true at my age. I'll give you a little a lie about my age if you want. I tell people down here, uh, uh, I know I look like I'm 48, but I'm actually 66. Both of those are lies. I'm 76, you know, <laughs> and I don't look like I'm 48 either. But um, I don't have quite the uh, quite the power that I had earlier. And I'm working on some things that I think are very important. If if you if you give me two minutes, mm -hmm. right, right, please go ahead. Yeah. What's that? Uh, pl please tell us about that. Yes. Okay. For the last three years, I've been working on so-called honor killings. Honor killings are where you slit the throat of your 17-year-old daughter because you find lipstick in her purse. You find phone numbers on her cell phone that you don't recognize. You see that she's holding hands with, you know, someone else. These are Muslim ones, all are related to first cousin marriages. Hindu ones are related to something else, but again, inbreeding. Now, with a lot of help from David Haig, whom I, I have a idea I want to test, I run it by him over and over. But I'm pretty sure I've worked out the logic on it now, and I'm about a third of the way through a book with a co-author on the evolutionary genetics of honor killings. Now, there's some people that fly up in my face and say, oh, you're rationalizing it by saying it has evolutionary genetics, you're making it sound fine. I say, fuck you, you know. <laughs> I don't know what you're allowed to have on your show. I say, F you. Uh, um, I say it's 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 a very uh, gruesome gruesome behavior, but someone has to take it on, and if it has to be me, it has to be me. So, a lot of these topics that you were just mentioning, like group selection, gene culture coevolution, some of the earlier stuff, I have to just you know, evolutionary psychology, I just have to say, basically, I haven't been following, you know, and I have to concentrate on on what topics that, that I still have energy to concentrate on. The, I always thought, Ricardo, 45 years ago, that it's natural for a theoretician to be attracted to those phenomena that contradict his or her theory at its deepest. 
So back then it was male homosexuality. Why male homosexuality if, if your whole theory is reproductive success? That don't make sense. And um, then, uh, so I kept up with it. I know the literature quite well. There's an older brother effect. I don't know whether you know this. The more older brothers you have, the greater chance that you're gay. Mm -hmm. Goes yeah. up. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did yeah, but uh, I wasn't sure if that literature uh, was replicated and if it was proven to be the case, but... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Trust me on that. That's a very solid finding. And it's about a 30% effect per older brother. So when I lecture on it, I tell people now, don't get fighting if you have five older brothers. Because it starts at about 2% for you. And then it jumps to 2.6, then 3.3, then 3.9. So maybe you're up to 5%. So you're still a 1 in 20 chance only. No, that's, that's for sure. Now, genes were discovered uh, back in 1963, uh, XQ28, and that has been confirmed. Uh, people don't know that because there was Canadian work that didn't find it, but that's okay. Uh, it's often true that a gene will be found in one population, but not necessarily in another. And now we know that there's a gene on the eighth chromosome uh, and XQ28. And XQ28 led to the notion that maybe it's a sex antagonistic gene where the gene is bad in you, uh, but it would be good if the same gene were in a woman. Right. So there was work done in Italy. Uh, 100 men, 100, 100 homosexual men, 100 straight men, and they looked at the reproductive success of their female relatives. And sure enough, the mothers, grandmothers, aunts, uh, and whatever it was, maternal female cousin, all had elevated reproduction. None of the males did. And on the paternal side, no elevation at all. By the way, David A. came up with an extremely clever explanation for the older brother effect. Um, he's been very interested in um, uh, these aggregations of cells that an uh, offspring will put into its mother. Uh, Microchimerism, it's called. Have you heard of it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we know that uh, the mother puts cells in the fetus, too. So you can actually have some of your grandmother's genes via your mother. Your, your grandmother put it in your mother, and your mother put it in you. Um, now, uh, what would the effect be of you putting genes in your mother? Uh, you would expect, if it's adaptive, that it might increase her nursing of you. So David Haig points out that they are located near nipples. You don't know if they increase blood, uh, I mean, uh, milk flow. Then he found uh, separately, they're located near the endometrium. 
the endometrium is the internal surface of the womb. And that's the same thing that's shed every month when a woman has her period. So why would why would you stick genes in your mother's endometrium? There, David's hypothesis was it was indirect investment in you because you're killing off uh, her chance of having an offspring too quickly. So she's starting to get pregnant, but you've got your genes there in the endometrium causing her to have a period. So that lengthens interbirth interval, which is advantageous for you who put the, who put the genes in mom in the first place. So now recently he hypothesized, just as a guess somewhere in one of his papers, that maybe the maybe the uh, older brother effect is the same thing. If, if I make you gay, you see, you're less competition to me later on for women and so on. It's clever. So who knows if it's true? I don't know why I got on that. Why the hell did I get on that? Well, probably that I've, I've just gotten, you know, I wrote this book on selfish genetic elements with Austin Bird, 15 years of my life. And I had to learn genetics. I didn't know genetics. But it's a huge blessing to learn genetics because the genetics is just pouring out of the, out of the woodwork. So anyway, I'm, I'm tending to work more on genetics and, you know, limited problems. And I'm not following all these different areas that you mentioned. Yeah, I, I mean, in genetics, particularly, I guess, population genetics was really what led to the development of ideas like kin selection, for example, right? Well, yeah, population genetics, in retrospect, was often a disappointment, Ricardo, because it... It insisted on a particular kind of model, you know, where you, you you had two alleles at each locus and you had this and that and the fourth thing. Uh, David, David Haig doesn't use population genetics. When he comes up with genomic imprinting, it's just straight genetic logic and to hell with um, modeling it as two alleles in competition and so on. And I know the guy out there at Stanford, I forget his name, who's a population genetics freak. And he often used to be hostile to ideas of mine because they hadn't been rendered in population genetics. For example, my paper on haplodiploidy and evolution of social insects. You don't know who I'm talking about, do you, at, at Stanford? No, no, I, I'm not sure. Forget him. Well, okay. So, so uh, j just going back to the part you referred about, uh, your uh, you're at the moment doing uh, work on honor killing. So, what would be the evolutionary mechanisms you're focusing on to try to explain that uh, phenomenon? Okay, there are two different ones: Hindus and Muslims. So, we'll skip Hindus for the moment. 
Muslims, they are strongly associated with first cousin marriages. 65% of Saudi Arabian marriages are first cousin. 45% of Iraqi are first cousin. 40% of Pakistani are first cousin. Now, if you keep that up year after year, here's what happens. You start off, you're related to the offspring by half. However, with first cousin, it goes up to nine sixteenths. Now you add another first cousin, it goes up higher. You just do that five or six generations, and now you're related to your own child by 0.98 or something like that. If you keep up the first cousin marriages every other generation, it just jacks it up. Now, it also, however, jacks up relatedness to your collateral relatives. So now you are married, uh, sorry, you are related to your daughter by, I said 0.98, you could say 0.96, 0.94, I don't give a damn. But I like 0.98 because then I emphasize that your relatedness to your, your nephews and nieces is 0.96. Your relatedness to your first cousins uh, is 0.90. So the difference between them is less now. It has made the relatedness of collateral relatives higher compared to your relatedness to your own daughter. Remember, it's your daughter whose throat you're going to slit. And the pressure is to preserve the honor of the family. And that m must mean, in terms, of in, in terms of fitness effects, it must be preserving some beneficial effect on, um, on these other relatives. So that's my basic notion there. Uh, Hindus are different. It's not a family decision. It's made by the Purga which is the group uh, that that uh, runs, you know, Hindu societies are organized by caste. Mm -hmm. So you go from Brahmin to untouchable. And if you're big enough, you might have eight castes. If it's a small enough village, it might be four castes. Now, it's absolutely required that you marry within caste. And we have excellent genetic data now going back 3,000 years that there's been within caste endogamy. That, relate, that increases relatedness within the caste, lowers it between castes, and then the honor killings are typically when you have the gall to marry up, then the other caste wants to kill you. You're not related. But then they want to kill her also, mm -hmm. their own daughter, for allowing you to marry her. So the role of inbreeding is a bit different in each case, but in each case, inbreeding is involved. But uh, I mean, do you also consider there in that explanation the role that paternity uncertainty might play or, or not? Not, not really. Uh, 
I mean, I think I know what you're referring to. Um, the worst thing your daughter can do is decide not to marry a first cousin. Okay. Now, it could still be, it wouldn't be paternity uncertainty. It would just be certainty that it, it dropped from your related to her children by 0.96 to you're related to her children by uh, 0.49 or something because she's outbred. So there's no, there's no one eighth here. There's suddenly it's, it's an outbred individual. Mm -hmm. What I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I understand. Okay, so Dr. Trivers, we've already done almost two hours. I guess that perhaps right. uh, at least for today, it would be better to end the interview here. Uh, so, I mean, it was really a pleasure to talk to you and to meet you, of course, and to have you on the show. So, I mean, thank you a lot for your time. And I, I don't know, perhaps maybe somewhere in the future we could have another conversation. So. Uh, Ricardo, it's a joy talking to you. If I have to sit and look at a guy for two hours, you're not a bad guy to look at. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel on February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. You also have the alternative of supporting me on Subscribestar or Paypal. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Geline, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Jan Haninen, and my two producers, Zizar Weber and Rosie. Thank you for all.